Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Peter Liu. And I'm Jen Lee, and we are pediatric gastroenterologists from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Today, we're going to be talking about neonatal cholestasis, and specifically how to differentiate that from benign jaundice of infancy. So for that topic, we're going to invite our uh, guest. His name is Dr. Bill Balistreri, who is uh, from, Ch- from Cincinnati Children's Hospital. He is a giant in the field of pediatric GI and hepatology, and just a few things I thought were kind of cool. He's the first pediatric hepatologist who's the president of ASLD, like the premier liver uh, organization. He's been president and held many leadership positions within NASPGAN. And he's also the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Pediatrics, which is uh, pretty cool. We're going to talk about neonatal cholestasis. And so it's a topic that I think is super important, not just for pediatric GI or hepatologists, but really for pediatricians and also for parents to, to know about. Yeah, so let's check it out. On to the show. On to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us to record this episode of Bowel Sounds. So before we talk about our topic today, which is going to be neonatal cholestasis, and we'll kind of go over to exactly what that means, um, clearly you've played a huge role in the, shaping the fields of pediatric gastroenterology and hepatology. Um, but before talking about the topic, rewinding back, what kind of first interested you in the topic we're talking about today and pediatric hepatology in general? Well, thank you. You're very kind to say that. Uh, it, you know, it was not a linear pathway. Uh, you know, and in fact, getting together for today really made me try to reconstruct the sequence of events. It's still pretty hard because it really was a matter of being uh, being in the right place at the right time and without a lot of other competition. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but the liver disease aspect, which is what I really like to focus on, really began during my internship. I had a very puzzling uh, little guy with anecteric liver failure, hypoglycemia, uh, suggesting that he had some type of metabolic liver disease. So I figured I'm an intern. I'm a real doctor now. So my job is to figure it out. Right. 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 So the attending was uh, Bill Schubert. He was the chief of staff and the attending of this patient. And he said, go ahead. Gave me free reign. Yeah. So I... I went through the textbooks and bumbled my way through uh, this textbook-driven workup. It wasn't much to to guide me. And Schubert would come by and sort of look at my notes and pat me on the back. And that really was a major stimulation, you know, to get some positive feedback. Right. You know, we hear all about feedback nowadays, but clearly it meant a lot to me. Right. Uh, so that experience really gave me a couple of ideas. Number one, I, I love the idea of metabolic pathways of the liver and how they function and how they don't function. In other words, experiments of nature when those pathways go wrong. So I said, okay, this is what I want to do. I, uh, at the end of my internship, I said, okay, this is the career path. I want to focus on liver disease, metabolic liver disease especially. So I went back to Dr. Schubert and I said, you know, I'd like to do a fellowship in pediatric gastroenterology. And he looked at me and said, what's that? Because <laughs> there wasn't anything, obviously. Uh-huh. And I, 
So I, you know, I really relate that story to, to emphasize that there was no established discipline of pediatric gastroenterology. Yeah. Because pediatrics is basically gastroenterology. What do they need to do? They need to eat. They need to grow. They need to gain. They need to not have diarrhea. Right. And, of course, you have to have a good liver. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, nevertheless, he, he supported the idea, and we developed sort of a loose curriculum. Mm -hmm. And we took advantage of the unique uh, clinical and research opportunities that, uh, that we encountered. So, I'll give you a uh, a quick example. During my GI fellowship, one entity that demanded our attention was Rye syndrome. Uh -huh. Acute encephalopathy, fatty liver in the uh, early 70s. And, and uh, marked increase in the incidence. In fact, in one month, we had 24 cases. One month. Wow. So these challenges were enormous because this was a disease that would progress over 24, 48 hours mm. to death. So... A lot of work went into it. A lot of, a lot of folks here and around the state of Ohio, in fact, uh, finally discovered a link between Rye syndrome and aspirin administration. Significant media attention, warning labels, Surgeon General, and now dramatic right. decline. In fact, I would venture that most of the listeners have never seen a case of Rye syndrome. Right. I've never. Yeah. Have you? No. There you go. So, And then... The major change was stimulated, again, by a very puzzling case. Finally narrowed it down. There must be something wrong with this guy's bile acid metabolism. Uh -huh. So, again, naively, I phoned the guru, a guy named Dr. Alan Hoffman at the Mayo Clinic, who had written everything about bile acid physiology. And we started chatting, and the next thing I know, he said, come on up here and do a training with us. So, uh -huh. so that sojourn in his lab led to the lifelong pursuit of bioelastic metabolism and health and disease, including neonatal cholestasis. Anyway. Yeah. So, you know, moving on to our topic of neonatal yeah, cholestasis, sure. uh, say it. Um, can you explain what it is? Sure. Yeah, well, simply stated, it's impaired bile flow. Cholestasis, Greek for bile stasis. Right. Simple. Uh, and the main driver of bile of flow is bioelastic transport. So, in fact, after the, my sojourn at the Mayo Clinic, uh, my first job was at CHOP, and I was especially fascinated by the patient population of infants with what was called idiopathic neonatal hepatitis. Exact nature, obviously, was clearly unknown, but that diagnosis, by default, accounted for about 65-70% of the neonates that presented with impaired bile flow. Yeah. So our initial efforts were focused on trying to delineate the exact cause. A simple concept was that in these patients, especially those with the familial forms where you knew they had a brother or sister that had passed, uh, there was some un undiscovered inborn error in that fundamental physiologic process, process involved in generating bioflow, bile acid synthesis, bile acid transport, bile acid detoxification. Very simple concept. And if we could understand that, we could treat more effectively. One of the main reasons why this is such an important topic is that jaundice, as we all know, is not uncommon in newborns. And uh, it's seen all the time. Um, but in most of the time, it's benign and physiologic or maybe related to breastfeeding. But certainly, jaundice can also be a sign of cholestasis, yeah. this thing that, you're, that we're talking about. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about why that's such a critical distinction. But... Um, so when should someone worry that this is, like, when should, like, a pediatrician, for example, or even a parent worry about, um, or at least think about 
maybe this jaundice is not benign in our usual jaundice. When right. does that concern start? Two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> simple, Next question. Simple yeah. answer. This is really a, a major concern of mine. I have a baby in the ICU right now uh, who uh, parents uh, were kept telling the pediatrician, my baby's jaundice, and the pediatrician kept saying, all babies are jaundiced. Yeah. And at five months of age, he shows up with biliary atresia and ended up needing a transplant. So it's very frustrating to us. Now, granted, you know, you may practice pediatrics for your entire career and never see a case of biliary atresia. But on the other hand, I don't think you want to retire knowing that you missed a case right. of biliary atresia. So the most important step in evaluating any jaundice baby beyond that magic two, three weeks of life is to uh, fractionate the serum bilirubin. In fact, uh, there are now efforts uh, led by uh, Baylor to to actually look at newborn bilirubin levels. So our NASPGIN guidelines recommend referral to a gastroenterologist or hepatologist if the direct bili is greater than one. Um, So now the baby's in my clinic, but before we move on to testing, what key points uh, in the history and physical should I be looking for? Well, the, the, that's correct. The guidelines state that the uh, conjugated direct bilirubin levels are considered abnormal at greater than one. Uh, and I, I think that's very, very reasonable. That's 17 millimoles per liter for those uh, who use the other conversion, regardless of the total bilirubin level. Because the, one of the old dictums was that you wait till it's 20% of the right. total, which I thought was always crazy. Mm-hmm. So we would always would teach. If that direct is elevated to any degree, mm-hmm. I wouldn't even put a number... 1.0 or whatever. So, so that you know, then you go back to exactly what's the newborn history, you know, maternal history, newborn history, stool color, physical exam, which we can get into. Yeah. And of course, is there a family history of, of liver disease? Right. As pediatric gastroenterologists and hepatologists, so yeah. once they have that concern, they come to our clinic, we're thinking about this history, we're looking for things like acolic stools. Right. Um, but still, they're going to need some evaluation. Sure. And the guidelines go over a lot of those tests, and there's right. tiers, and it's really nicely organized. So we won't go through all of those. But in terms of just broadly thinking about the categories and the major causes, how do you usually think about that? First thing, of course, is rule out treatable conditions. I always tell the fellows, don't let the sun set on a, on a disease that could could be treatable if you thought about it. Obviously, yeah. sepsis, uh, galactosemia, tyrosinemia in the old days. Now, with newborn screen, that's not such an issue. Panhypopit, we see that every once in a while. Bile acid, synthetic defects. And then, then you can throw in other cystic fibrosis and spasated bile. So that's, that's easy, easy to do, alpha-1. Uh, then you need to really sort out those that have biliary atresia from right. those that still need some further workup. And, uh, and then you can move to uh, more sophisticated uh, testing. And, and I'm not, we can get into it as to what I would do for biliary atresia versus, say, neonatal uh, cholestasis. Neonatal cholestasis now, of course, everybody sends off genetic testing. Right. So a big reason that this is an important topic is that biliary atresia is the most common cause of obstructive jaundice in the first three months of age, and early recognition is critical. So before we get into the details, can you describe biliary atresia? What is it? And it's the end result of a destructive inflammatory process that affects the bile intra and extrahepatic. It's not just extrahepatic biliary atresia. And that leads to fibrosis, bile duct obliteration, uh, and, of course, the development of biliary cirrhosis. And that process happens very, very rapidly, as I've already alluded to. 
it is the commonest form of chronic cholestasis and the most common indication for liver transplant in a pediatric population. So, so it is a clearly important disease for all of us. And the urgency, as you alluded to, is because recognition and intervention surgically can affect outcomes. Fairly no, dram- no question. Urgency yeah. is the correct concept. As I would, again, with, with the case that I just described to you, yeah. It's certainly not the only factor, but we know that uh, if the baby gets beyond three to four months of age and has not had uh, the diagnosis and the attempt at the Kasai uh, portoenterostomy, the chances of, uh, of success are pretty, pretty uh, minimal. Yeah. So with that in mind, in terms of, I feel like over time, the evaluation of those kinds of infants where there's that suspicion mm-hmm. may have changed a little bit, but what do you usually do for someone where you have that suspicion uh, for biliary atresia? Right. Well, I'll tell you what we don't do. We don't do a HIDA scan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a waste of five days, and you end up scra- still scratching your head. Yeah. So uh, so it's like any other clinical encounter, history and uh, physical examination, and the ability to recognize stool color. You know, there's stool cards for mass screening and so on. I think that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Standard labs, not only to rule out the entities that I've already talked about, but right. To get some idea as to how how ill this baby is, obviously, if they have a prolonged uh, INR, it's right. very concerning. Ultrasound uh, findings of an absent gallbladder is a good clue. It's not a hundred percent, but it's a good clue. And also, any other structural abnormality, colidocal cyst, uh, can be seen. Yeah. Uh, biopsies, uh, we certainly consider that a the, the gold standard, but. I think more recently we've been getting away from that because now we're using something called MMP7, mm-hmm. uh, matrix metalloproteinase 7. This was actually uh, defined by my colleague, Dr. Georgia Bezea, mm-hmm. whose lab was uh, focused on biomarker discovery. And uh, so we've been using this for about two years now, and there's a very clear cutoff, mm-hmm. about 53 or so, with a 99% sensitivity and a 97% specificity, approximately. And that's been shown both in our cohort, in other cohorts, and then in collaboration with uh, a group in Taiwan. And that test, does it matter? Does it differ based on how old the infant is or it's really going to be abnormal even early on? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean... But even in the earliest patients that we had that suspicion, yeah. that cutoff holds. Yeah. Now, there are some caveats. The prematurity may be a little, may, may alter it a little bit. And there are a few conditions which may give you false positives, mm-hmm. but not false negatives, as you see from the sensitivity yeah. and specificity. So really, in that initial lab evaluation, that can be drawn and kind of clue you in even while we're doing like an ultrasound. And no question. About and, the next and the steps. turnaround time is very, very rapid. Okay. And then just really quickly, so you mentioned HIDA scans. Yeah. And, um, I only mentioned it to exclude. Right, That's exactly. All. I probably yeah. shouldn't have even said it. No, no, and just to kind of emphasize, so like, you know, so um, I guess in the past, the teaching, my, my teaching had been, so if it excretes, that would exclude potentially the treatment, but there is that delay just in doing the study. Is that kind of the main downside is like it's delaying this diagnosis where time yeah. is critical? Well, we've already spent too much time talking about the HIDA scan, <laughs> but as long as you're asking, yes. Yeah. First of all, to uh, to prepare it appropriately, it, it was recommended uh, to use five days of phenobarbital yeah. preload. Uh, there's no question that if you see rapid appearance of uh, isotope in the in the duodenum, it's yeah. unlikely to be biliary right. artery. But uh, 
I can use those five days more productively. Yeah. So that kind of transitioned us because we've talked about the urgency of diagnosis several times already. Uh, and it seems we're no longer aiming for a Kasai before that 60-day mark. But now we're really looking for it as soon as possible. Can you explain what the evidence is of that change? Yeah. Well, the, the, I, I think there's evidence both from the original Morio Kasai's data uh, where he had very clear cutoffs under uh, under 60 days 60 to 90 and greater than 90 and and the success rate for long-term uh, bioflow uh, was uh, uh, directly related to that so it would drop from in his hands 60 70 80 percent success rate rapidly to 50 percent down to 10 percent uh, and since then, other series, including our own, have shown this, the same thing. The, the, da- the data that I mentioned to you from Taiwan using stool cards where they recognize the disease a little earlier, uh, and from Japan uh, uh, with Akikimura, the same thing. Uh, so there, it's a well-established uh, dictum. The Baylor data uh, was, uh, was able to show a reduction in the age uh, at uh, Kasai to about 56, 57 days, if I'm quoting the literature correctly. So it clearly makes a difference. The stool cards that they used in Taiwan, so that was like yeah. given to like the entire population, all new moms. You know, I, I know this is kind of brought up not uncommonly in other countries, like with universal screening, something right. like non-invasive. Like, what are your thoughts about that? Well, it's been shown over and over again at, right. at not just Taiwan, but the original in, in several prefectures in Japan where they gave the cards to the parents and told them to circle what, yeah. what the stool looked like. Uh, the Taiwanese data with Mei Wei Chen and then, uh, Rick Schreiber in Canada has shown the same thing. So, uh, it's no longer a, a, a just a simple idea. It yeah. works. You're right. empo- anytime you empower parents, because as I mentioned with the case, uh, the parents go to the pediatrician and say, my baby's yawn. Well, don't worry. Right. But look at it. I got a stool card here that says the stool is a colic. Oh, okay. Now yeah. you got my attention. Right. Right. I think it was that, that app recently that, um, you know, kind of. Yeah, Poop MD. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then finally about Bilitrija, you know, the pathogenesis is still an area of a lot of research. And uh, it's been linked to a number of different things like toxins and viruses mm-hmm. and specific mutations and obviously bilirtresia in itself is somewhat heterogeneous but what are your thoughts about if you're trying to explain to another like a pediatrician or a family how, what do you how do you explain why this occurs well i can't yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean uh, we don't know the pathogenesis yeah. uh, we know the the the, the, the process uh, we can outline it fairly quickly, but we don't know the pathogenesis. And you know, one my favorite movie, Casablanca, you know, round up the usual suspects. Mm-hmm. So over the years, it's been viruses, toxins, including the new biliary atrezone, mm-hmm. defects in morphogenesis, other susceptibility gene mutations. Um, and, and you have to build in a couple of factors. Number one, it's, it's uh, developmentally regulated. If you look at the animal models, you can create it in a newborn uh, mouse, but you can't create it in a teenager or an adult mouse. And same thing here. Secondly, I have uh, six sets of twins with biliary atresia, including three identical. One has it, the other does not. So how do you, how do you explain that? Uh, so I think we need to stay tuned. Uh, I, you know, I, I know there's, uh, 
great research going on, mining patient-derived material to advance the understanding of clinical practice. I mentioned biomarker discovery. Uh, I mentioned uh, liver tissue to look at uh, clinical outcomes and new therapeutic targets, including the work done here by Dr. Shiva Kumar. And then biliary organoids. I think using biliary organoids both for study as well as clinical application is going to be the way to go. Yeah. But if when parents say what causes, I say I, I no, I don't, I don't have any idea. Right. It's, we're working on it. We're working on it. Yeah. It's not anything that you did, Mom. Right. Yeah. Because you have exactly. to. I think you you have to reassure them. You know, yeah. because there was that one day during their pregnancy where something there's something yeah. that happened. Sure. And they say, was that the cause? Right. Right. That's true. I think maternal guilt is something that a lot of mothers feel. And if, if you add biliary atresia on top of that, that must be really challenging. Well, whether they feel it or not, I think it's, I, I think it's important that you bring that up uh, and, uh, and uh, say right off the top when they, say, when they say, what caused it? You know what they're asking. Yeah. What did I do? Right. One of the things we have found most valuable as host of this podcast is hearing about how leaders in our field got to where they are now. So do you have any advice for trainees or junior faculty like us that are just starting our career? Well, I'm loaded with aphorisms because I, you know, I, I get this question from all of our trainees and young faculty all the time. And, uh, Harry Truman said it best. He says the best advice to give the young folks is ask them what they want to do and then tell them to go do it. Mm-hmm. And I, and that's I, easy, I, huh? Yeah. Why it's real simple. It? Right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the aphorisms that, that I go through, it relates to research, clinical care, and then their own development. For research, you know, do what you love and love what you do. And if it's not in your belly, don't fool yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, the easiest person to deceive is one's own self. So don't fool yourself. Uh, other great advice was Walter Gretzky, Wayne Gretzky's dad, said, always told them, go where the puck's going, not where it's been. And mm-hmm. now, you know, I coach youth lacrosse and I tell the kids, don't run to the ball. Uh, it's just, so it's the same thing. Yeah. Create a new pathway. Understand where the field is going and stay ahead of it. Uh, communicate. And I emphasize to trainees the value of working within a community of like-minded individuals and then having, you know, you got such great tools for communication now. For the clinical care, the aphorism I, I love to use is people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you can sit there and talk about all your expertise, but unless you can relate it to that, their problem and what's on their mind, what's right. their agenda. Carla DiLorenzo talks about this all the time with abdominal pain. What's, right. their, obje- what's their agenda? And then, as I mentioned with the, the, the cases that got me started when I was a young and uh, Apply biological and physiologic principles to solve a clinical problem. If you understand the biology, if you understand the physiology, then you can understand what went wrong. Yeah. yeah. And then in terms of career development, I think it's very important that you know when to say no. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you young faculty come out and say, I, can, I want to do everything, right. you know. Uh, and, and the caveat or the corollary to that is if you say yes, you got to follow through. Focus. Persevere and commit. I can't t- tell you how many times I've sat, sat on committees or wherever, and I say, I, I hear somebody say, "Well, they get things done." Right. So you know, go get go get so and so. They get things done. I've also heard the converse. 
no, we, you know, they don't follow through, you know. We ask them to write a chapter or we ask them to do this and never heard. And that's, that's devastating to a, to one's career. I guess the last thing is you're taking a job, <clears throat> go to a place that's going to really utilize your talents and not fit you into a niche that you don't fit. <clears throat> and on the other hand, it's even better if you create your own niche so that what happens is after... Make yourself indispensable. After six or seven years, you're moving on. They have to replace you. You can't right. say, well, you know, Peter's gone. It's great. You know, we don't, we don't, <laughs> we don't need to worry about that. You, right. You've created something that has to be filled. Yeah, filled. I've been thinking about that a lot because I'm about to start my first faculty position in just a few months. And this is almost the exact same conversation right. that we had on the way here from driving from Columbus today. But a challenge that I have is keeping up with the literature. I think that there's so much really amazing and good research coming out every day. What advice do you have to keep up with what's new so that you can continue to think forward? Well, that's a great question and one of my favorite questions <clears throat> because uh, Albert Einstein said, never lose a holy curiosity. Mm -hmm. So you first have to respect the literature and love the literature and not look at it as, oh, my God, I got another copy of the New England Journal. I got to sort through that. No, this is news. This is great. There's something in there. So I think love and respecting the literature is very, very important. And then... Uh, Pick a few topics that you have your search focused on. You know, that many journals, including our journal, the Journal of Pediatrics, try to do that so that we can have personalized literature. So that's very important. You know, you, you don't have to read every, every journal cover to cover. And, of course, young generation, they, they get the table of contents online or sort through and search. Uh, and then set aside time to read. You know, it shouldn't be... Uh, an, an additional chore it should be part of your day you brush your teeth you have your, your dinner you're, you interact with your significant other and you read and you read don't just read in a journal read good literature the classics so what do you think are the biggest changes you have seen in the field of pediatric gastroenterology and hepatology over the course of your career and how do you think things will continue to change moving forward let me break that down into changes and then opportunities. Uh, uh, the changes, obviously, workforce. Uh, you know, it was great to tell your mother you were top ten in your field because there was only nine of us. You know? <laughs> uh, so now that the field has ex and expanded so much, I don't know everybody. Uh, and that's good. You got a tremendous effort uh, of our training programs to, to, to bring these young individuals into our field. And that's allowed folks to focus we have pancreas center, we have IBD center, we have intestinal failure, all of these silos, which obviously improves the outcome and helps patient care. So that's been the big, big, big difference. The community, you know, NASPGN, JPGN, uh, collaboratives, all these disease-focused collaboratives, that's been a major difference. Uh, in terms of liver, I think not, not just technology, but liver transplant, uh, that really drove some of the things I talked about earlier. We had a codified body of knowledge and we needed people who could take care of that group of diseases. And then in 1983, an NIH conference said, liver transplant is no longer experimental. It's a therapeutic option. And, and of course, that rapidly expanded and became the standard of care for children 
a default, granted. Uh, diseases desperate grown are by desperate appliance cured or not at all, to, to quote Shakespeare. So that meant that you needed individuals that could take care of these patients. So that led to not only hepatologists, internal medicine hepatologists and board certification, but a whole workforce of pediatric hepatologists. Uh, and then, of course, the basic and translational research worldwide, uh, developing non-transplant options. We can cure hepatitis C, very clear. We no longer see tyrosinemia because we can cure it. Wilson disease, other metabolic liver diseases. So saving livers as well as saving lives, they don't have to have a transplant. The challenge is, obviously, these have all been replaced by fatty liver. And in adults, it's become the number one indication for liver transplant. You know, you can't predict the future, but for in each of your silos, you should be able to say which way, where's the field moving? Right. I think the general concept is that one person can make a difference. You started your conversation with that. Every patient seen is a new challenge, a new opportunity, perhaps a new, exper a new experiment to solve their problem and solve even bigger problems. Uh, and the detailed study of a single patient, as, as I've emphasized from several points can lead to a new discovery, new science, uh, new medical uh, horizon, the joy of discovery, which keeps all of us young and, and in the field. Mm -hmm. Sometimes for me, I think a lot of junior faculty, we're thinking about, you know, this is a career that I will have for, you know, 30 years plus from now. And, you know, there are times when you wonder, like, what's going to keep me like, really motivated what are the things that really like drive me to continue doing this? You're right. I mean, you know, you say I, I'm going to be in this for 30, 40 years. That, you know, there's a big difference between being in a groove and being in a rut. They may uh, look the same. Yeah. But there's a huge difference, and you need to know when this is uh, not gonna not gonna be productive. Yeah. Are you really in a groove, or are you in a rut? And and know when to get out. Know when to make a change. Yeah. I love that. Groove versus a rut. I've never yeah. heard that before. I've never heard it before. I love it. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that on my quote wall of... Yeah, so you you like a yeah. picture of mountains and then, you know, inspirational poster. Well, I just have, like, one-liner quotes. Oh. So. You know, we've been asking all of our guests just just final words for our yeah. listeners. As I've as I hopefully uh, shared with you, I've been very fortunate uh, to be in the right place at the right time and to take advantage of some of the opportunities. My mentors... Have to have have to be uh, recognized because they really fostered independence, mm -hmm. and that independence didn't mean that they were going to spoon feed. They were kind enough to take the time to listen, uh, take an interest in me, give me a pat on the back, or maybe a little lower, and uh, and and those traits remain key ingredients to successful mentoring and career development, both of our trainees and young faculty. Uh, um, and if you're going to commit to being a mentor or if you're going to commit to be uh, to be mentored, make sure that that relationship's working. And uh, we owe it to not only pay it forward, but certainly to pay it back. Uh, I take great pride in the in the development of our young folks mm -hmm. and uh, make sure that they understand that they, they then should carry on the obligation to pay it back. Well, we had an awesome time talking to uh, Dr. Balistrieri and 
want to thank him again for taking the time to sit down with us and talk about this very important topic. Yeah, I think as gastroenterologists, it's hard because a lot of times we see these patients after they've already been identified by their pediatrician. So it must be so hard for pediatricians to continue to think about this. And I'm really glad that they do. Yeah, and I also think, you know, over time it's changed a little bit. What we decide is like the cutoff to be worried about. Um, so I think it's nice that it's, it's kept really simple, right? So at two to three weeks, two weeks, but three weeks maybe if they're breastfed, if they're still jaundiced, they need to have further evaluation. And that's really a fractionated bilirubin. And if it's over one, that has to be seen by a uh, pediatric gastroenterologist or hepatologist. And uh, if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. And if you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all three of the following things. One, tell one person about the podcast. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast. And three, on our Buzzcast on our Buzzcat on our Buzzcast page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the Naspian Foundation. You can also get there through www.naspgan.org. And the money you donate helps support some of the amazing things that NASPGAN, that the NASPGAN Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education, etc. And as always, the discussions, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and the guest and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.